Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, September 12th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope you had a great weekend, maybe at the State Fair in Albuquerque or watching some football. That was a good weekend for that, for sure. My wife and I went to the fair with a friend and her daughter this past weekend, and it was a lot of fun. If nothing else, go to smell some of the food out there. I saw about 200 turkey legs on the grill at one point smelled amazing. And if you read the Albuquerque Journal this morning, you know that the Junior Livestock Show is also back this year after a break from COVID last year. That's this Friday at one o'clock. But really, whatever you're into, everyone seemed to be having a great time. So I'd recommend checking it out this week if you haven't already. But for now, let's get to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. The U.S. Forest Service says prescribed burns are back on after a three-month hiatus. The program was put on hold in late May after the devastating Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon wildfire started by the federal government grew out of control near Las Vegas, New Mexico. The flames burned more than 500 square miles, setting a state record. Forest Service Chief Randy Moore says prescribed burns will now require new safeguards like same-day authorization to keep pace with evolving weather and ground conditions. Chief Moore says that the service will also use scientific analysis of burn plans, as usual, while adding a final on-site evaluation of potential human error from something like fatigue or inexperience. Moore says the agency will not back away from intentional burns altogether. He says that they're a crucial tool in reducing the buildup of fire fuel material on forest floors and grasslands. New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas has decided not to file charges against Bernalillo County deputies involved in the shooting death of a mentally ill woman. Balderas says he came to the decision after extensive examination of the case. In that case, which happened in 2019, deputies responded to the home of Alicia Lucero after a relative called 911 saying the 28-year-old had hit her uncle. The relative told authorities Lucero was mentally ill, needed help, and was a threat to herself and others. When deputies arrived, they said Lucero refused to come out, but then ran from the house screaming with a knife in her hand. Three sheriff's deputies shot Lucero, hitting her at least 21 times. She died at the scene. The Bernalillo County Commission and Sheriff Manny Gonzalez settled a lawsuit with the family for $4 million. Staff at the Bernalillo County District Attorney's Office say diversion programs meant to keep some people out of jail are being underused and that it's contributing to high incarceration rates while worsening behavioral health outcomes. A Legislative Finance Committee report from August 18th cites significant treatment gaps in the criminal justice system. In the report, analysts say diversion programs, drug courts, and reentry services are, quote, not necessarily widely available or used efficiently, end quote. According to reporting in the Albuquerque Journal, Adolfo Mendez, chief of policy and planning with the 2nd Judicial District Attorney's Office, says right now they have 167 people enrolled in the felony diversion program and 41 in the misdemeanor program. That's double what it was a few years ago, but he says he'd like to see the program reach its capacity of up to about 400 people. The federal government is making $35 million available to Native American and Alaska Native tribes to expand the reach of the new 988 crisis hotline. The funding is part of $150 million set aside in a bill meant to address gun violence and mental health that President Joe Biden signed in June. The reach of this will be limited, and that's something that tribes have often criticized, saying that they're forced to compete against each other for limited resources. Any of the 574 federally recognized tribes are eligible to apply for the grant money, along with tribal organizations. Up to 100 grants will be awarded. 
One of last week's top headlines is getting national reaction. Cowboys for Trump co-founder Coy Griffin's removal from office as Otero County Commissioner. This is all tied to Griffin's participation in the January 6th insurrection when he trespassed onto Capitol grounds. He did not enter the Capitol building itself. The story puts New Mexico in the national spotlight again, so we wanted to hear what our line opinion panel thought of the ruling and the fallout from it. On our panel this week, Michael Byrd, public health consultant and former president of the American Public Health Association. We also have Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations and Catherine McGill, the founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. Here's Gene. We're reacting to a historic ruling that's forced the removal of a New Mexico County official. Coy Griffin has been barred from public office for his role in the January 6th insurrection, effective immediately. The ruling also disqualifies the former Otero County Commissioner and Cowboys for Trump co-founder from holding any future public office. Time to bring in our line opinion panel for the week to talk this through. We're happy to have Michael Byrd, public health consultant and former president of the American Public Health Association. We also have Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations with us, and it's always a pleasure to have Catherine McGill, she's the founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. Thank you all for being here. Now, this ruling is the first time that any court has ruled the events of January 6, 2021, an insurrection by definition. Tom, how important is it to have that very particular thing on the record here? Well, it's obviously, it's uh, depending which side of the aisle you're on or which side of this case you're on, it's very significant, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because what it is, it's uh, the ruling is proof of concept that the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is meaningful and can still be used. And despite the fact that it's a state court ruling, uh, which means it isn't binding precedent for any other court in the country, uh, it's still a significant uh, proof of concept kind of ruling that other states and other courts can take a look at when addressing the uh, the, the insurrection of January 6th. Mm -hmm. Kathy, I mean, it's interesting, this decision, the first time since 1869, <laughs> this ruling has been used. It was almost like a double take when you really think about it, but the judge clearly was not messing around here, was he? No, not at all, and I think that, um... I want to add to the story that I, I believe that, you know, one of Griffin's arguments is that what they were doing is no different than what groups like Black Lives Matter have done. And um, the NAACP in Otero County and, and Common Cause filed an, and, you know, a brief to saying that, you know, it's not the same. Um, and they were cited in a lot of the national stories that picked this up. And I think it's really uh, important, um, as Tom said, that, you know, this was about insurrection using the 14th Amendment that they probably believe is just going to be used to uh, try to, you know, go up the chain and to uh, get more people um, uh, ousted or barred under that same ruling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Michael, the judge also wrote, uh, you can actually find a, a link to what the judge wrote on a number of websites. Uh, evidence shows Mr. Griffin normalized violence by aligning himself with other insurrectionists. He encouraged others to join the, quote, war and battle in the streets of Washington, end quote. And that's a huge part of it, isn't it? In, 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 we can't read the judge's mind, but it would seem that was a huge part of the ruling here. Uh, clearly. Um, I think the, the, the point I'd like to make, um, mm -hmm. and, and um, you know, that... that um, that, that we need to really be aware of, acknowledge and recognize is the fact that um, 
114 police officers, Capitol Police, were injured in that insurrection. Yep. Yep. And four of them, as I understand, committed suicide. Mm -hmm. um, and seven people died as, I believe the number seven died as a result of that insurrection. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that people need to be aware of the fact be, and own it that that words and this kind of action has consequences and and in this case we we lost we lost uh, we lost police officers and we lost people who got caught up in in this insurrection mm -hmm. and so there are consequences for the words and the language that people use and so people need to be very thoughtful about what they say and how they say things and um because words have consequences mm -hmm. uh, tom i'm so curious what's next for otero county i mean mr griffin seems to have some measure of support there of course in his community and you know on the board of commissioners voted to decertify that primary election result early this year as you recall you know, I, the, I'm wondering, will this ruling resonate and change minds or is it going to build more resentment? I mean, you mentioned earlier, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, how does this go down? I mean, now that it's actually a fact now. Yeah, you know, there's there's the process aspect, which is, right. of course, you know, the uh, the commissioner, you know, the commission seat being refilled and uh, different reports indicate that that could happen. Uh, within the next couple of days, of course, we're taping on Thursday. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that it's really going to really look at what is the will of the people of Otero County? And here's, you know, that's one of the continuing narratives that that I've heard in the in, you know, Coy Griffin's uh, you know, comments as a part of this particular case is the will of the people versus the will of the law. Right. And if it's really the will of the people, I almost have to wonder why is he representing himself? in court as opposed to the people coming up alongside and helping so i'm not i'm not entirely convinced that you know the the masses that he thinks is behind him are necessarily there they might be uh they've just been silent so far interesting point there kathy let me read a quote from mr griffin quote love me or hate me i am the will of the people of otero <laughs> county and I still had three and a half months left in my term but judge francis matthew took away the will of the people in otero county is that what happened here? Um, he was elected um, by the people of Otero County, um, but it doesn't mean that the people continue to support um, his behavior um, resulting from what he did on January 6th. It remains to be seen as um, Tom said, whether or not the people are still alongside him, we didn't see um, any marching in the streets when that ruling came down. So mm -hmm. um, I, I doubt that people uh, were surprised that it was happening and um, I'm certain it'll be appealed and all those things, but you know, he, he may think more of himself than he ought. Mm -hmm. You know, Michael, uh, Kathy mentioned the appeal. He, Mr. Uh, Griffin says he is going to appeal, but interestingly, uh, this civil case was filed in March by a Los Alamos resident and two Santa Fe residents. I got to imagine Otero County, that's not going to go down too well for the people in Otero County. Is that, does that make a difference here in your mind? Well, it might to the folks in Otero, as you yeah. referenced, but um, there is the law that applies to everyone across the board. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Kathy, I'll give you the last one on this one, too. You know, if he says he's the will of the people down there, 
the will of the people did not remove him or ask for his removal again does that does that make a difference here well i think that um if the NAACP Otero County branch um mm-hmm. filed a brief um uh president joseph cotton um talking about that constituency now a large constituency in, o- in Otero County wasn't all of the people right. um and certainly some of the people uh, felt like you know he should be removed from office and uh, remains to be seen if it is, quote unquote, the will of the people. Boy, I tell you what, it was national news. I was listening to a back east radio station. This was the third story in at the top of the hour the other day. I mean, people mm-hmm. suddenly New Mexico is all over the national news again. We'll be watching Mr. Griffin in the coming months to see where he goes from here and to see how Otero County reacts to this decision in the upcoming election. Farther north in Albuquerque, homelessness is one of the biggest issues for voters right now. According to a new survey conducted by the city, 70% of people living in Albuquerque are unhappy with the city's response to homelessness. That's double the number of people who felt that way just a year ago. Gene and the line explore the reasons behind that sudden shift. Homeless encampments have become a key discussion point in this issue. City council is moving to ban them permanently while the mayor is trying to keep the idea alive. But as we wait, other non-sanctioned encampments keep popping up. One of them at Wilson Park, right next to a middle school. Now the city is asking the school district to help out an understaffed police force to keep the park clear. Kathy, is this fair to pull a school district into this? Um, I think we have to pull everybody into it. Um, On security issues? Um, you know, security issues that people are looking for a place to be mm-hmm. um obviously it's something that we have to deal with and there's a lot of reasons that people wind up living outdoors in the park um when it becomes a security issue if aps um uh security can and police can can help uh with managing the security of the park and making sure that that families and students feel safe. We were involved in a meeting when some of the uh, caregivers and parents at, at Wilson Middle School said that, you know, they didn't feel safe with their children walking home mm-hmm. um, by these homeless camps. It's a, uh, a problem that, that, that we have to address taking a holistic approach. And so I stand by my comment to say that everybody is going to have to weigh in on you know, figuring out pieces of how we um, solve this this homelessness issue, how we at least manage it so that we can figure out, you know, is it going to be okay for people to be in the park or are we going to move to some sort of sanctioned safe camps where we can then say to people, you can't be here, Mm -hmm. but you can go to this other place. You know, inter- yep. Interestingly, APS spent about five and a half million on fencing and gates between May 2020 and now. Uh, not all homeless related, but a lot of money's been spent. Uh, Tom, according to the city's 2022 citizen perception survey, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Maybe I do actually. 70% of Albuquerque residents are unhappy with the city's approach to homelessness and 41% give the city the lowest possible rating. Now, perception is one thing. Reality, certainly, as you know, another. Are people right to have such a negative outlook on this issue at this point? Well, uh, you know, whether they have a right or not, I think, you know, the 70 percent is is the number that is, uh, you know, kind of defining this particular issue from a perception 
perspective. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the timing of it, I, I'd be interested, and I forgot to take a look at this as I looked at the Brian Sandoroff's crosstabs, um, but I really don't, I don't know if, um, you know, the question was being asked just as Coronado was being closed down mm -hmm. uh, or mm -hmm. if that was part of the debate because, you know, closing Coronado uh, ended up being like whacking a beehive without a plan of how to, you know, address all the displaced bees. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was really uh, not necessarily the finest moment, but uh, could have had a big impact in how, how residents responded to this particular issue. Despite that, I think that while it could be just a blip, uh, it's pretty significant. And I think a lot of people in Albuquerque and the surrounding area are just saying, yeah, homelessness is the number one issue facing the residents of Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. Tom, I want, to, I want to ask you what you make of the um, change over two years here in your experience doing perception surveys with your own company. Um, just two years ago, only 36% of people gave the city an unfavorable rating and now it's doubled in two years. What does your gut say uh, about that? Is that a blip? Is that an anomaly? Or can you actually double the amount of people in just two years being unhappy? It's incredible. That, that was really surprising to me as well, you know, yeah. because typically, you know, when, with our perception survey, we, you know, it's, it's pretty stable as far as the different industries and trust of different professions. But every once in a while, you'll get an outlier that all of a sudden shoots straight up. So, you know, whether or not it's a blip or, um, you know, maybe some of the rising concern, we won't really know until next year uh, to see where it charts over that three-year trend. But remember, two years ago, mm -hmm. um, you know, we were right at the start of uh, COVID. There was a lot of uncertainty. Now that we're out on the other side, yep. uh, you know, emotions are a bit raw. Uh, and people are kind of, you know, feel like that they've been through, uh, you know, quite a bit, and we all have. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps that's some of what's reflected. That's a good point there. I think I might buy what you're saying there. That makes sense to me. Uh, Michael, the Gateway Center, got to talk about that. You know, so much emphasis is put on the last couple of years. Certainly expectations are sky high. Any hope it will accomplish as much as the city is promising or, or have they overpromised? Or what, how should we consider the Gateway Center at this point? I, I, I. As, as we've had conversations for a while now about the nature, you know, what is, what is what's behind homelessness? Mm -hmm. What is the nature and extent of it? Um, and, and again, I would say that, um, that clearly it's, it's not just an Albuquerque problem. It, it is a national problem. So there are some things we have some control and influence over, and there are some thing, factors that, that we have less in control over. Mm -hmm. um, I, in terms of the Gateway Center, in, based on what I know to this point, it, it, it seems to me to be an appropriate um, response. And, um, and um, it, it, but it, you know, one can only hope that, that they really thought this out, have a good plan, and, and when it's implemented, that it in fact will impact um, uh, have some sort of measurable impact on on reducing levels of homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, having having background as as a medical social worker, having worked with the Indian Health Service, and and in many cases worked with people who were on the street mm -hmm. in my past. Um, it is a population that is extremely challenging. Um, it is a population that that oftentimes there's a long there's a long history. Of, of, of family uh, disruption, um, violence, um, substance abuse, 
and over generations mm-hmm. in some cases and that kind that 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 nature of of working with someone who, who who's been impacted in that way um and, and you know there's a whole host of you know we we know what the, what's going on with them and from the standpoint of the conditions mm-hmm. um substance abuse and mental disorders and and all that 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 is that is an extremely challenging population to to intervene with um so it's not it's not for the faint-hearted you know and and right. we, we're, we're going to be looking for some saints out there to really work with them in a way that's meaningful that 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 respects them mm-hmm. but engages them and shows them that there is there are some other ways mm-hmm. in terms of options for them to get out of homelessness and you you and and, and there will be go ahead. Oh, sorry michael i didn't mean to cut you off there my fault you anticipated my next question let me throw it to kathy uh there's a service this center will have it's called a quote unquote a first responder drop-off end quote where police can take individuals they've picked up who don't belong at the hospital or in jail. And the city's community services department director says this is a huge step in helping people who are intoxicated, suffering from mental illness. This sounds logical. This sounds something like should have happened a long time ago, Kathy. I'm, I'm curious your reaction to this. Oh, I think that, you know, it's gonna be great. And again, it needs to be all of these um, um, interventions. And so being able to keep people from going to emergency rooms or going to jail and dropping them off at the Gateway Center, I think is gonna be really great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, our goal as community members is to make sure that um, city is accountable for maintaining good policies and practices and procedures, and that the things that we're being told are actually get executed in the way that, um, that they envision. And I also think that, um, you know, speaking of saints, uh, my ears pricked up when I heard Michael say thanks that we're going to need some. Um, I heard on one of the council um, testimony, public testimony about a church um, who is uh, told a tale of, of two different encampments. And there was one that that was picked up outside their gate that, you know, all the things that, that we've heard about happening with encampments was happening. It was dirty. Um, you know, there was some unwanted activity. And then he talked about the encampment that the church was planning on the other side of the fence, which is going to be for uh, people to be able to be in their cars. They will have uh, sanitation, you know, um, ability for people to be able to use the restroom to get a shower. Um, and so the church is taking that on, paying for it. And so maybe we need to look at some of those other kinds of, of uh, opportunities and uh, as Michael uh, mentioned, we need to find some saints and uh, perhaps churches who might say that, you know, what can we do? Everybody's going to have to figure out how we get in to solve this problem. That's right. Of course, the big news this week is we the moratorium is out. <laughs> the veto has been broken. Uh, Wednesday night, city council voted to get homeless encampments back on as a real- reality again with Trudy Jones uh, changing her vote from 6-3 and didn't have enough votes to hold the mayor prevails there. Thanks again to Gene and our panelists. In case you've missed it, we've been working to hear perspectives from all around this issue. Last month, District 4 City Councilor Brooke Bassan explained her reasoning after switching from supporting encampments to pushing the permanent ban. We've also heard from the New Mexico Harm Reduction Collaborative, who works with unhoused people daily. 
Both of those interviews are on our New Mexico in Focus YouTube channel, and they're on past episodes of the podcast, too, if you'd rather just listen. As for our final segment on this episode of the podcast, the panel weighs in on a new investigation from the Associated Press, showing exactly how little red flag laws are used to get guns out of the hands of dangerous individuals. Here's Gene once more. We have one final discussion to get to, red flag laws and a new investigation from the Associated Press that shows how little they're being used around the country, but especially here in New Mexico. Red flag laws, if you don't know, are a lot designed to allow police officers to petition a judge to order a gun owner who poses an imminent danger to themselves or others to surrender their firearm. Now, since 2020, more than 600 people have died from gun violence in New Mexico, but our state's red flag law has been used just eight times in that same time period. Now, Tom, starting broadly, how surprised were you to see that, those stats and those statistics? You know, it's an interesting story. You know, obviously the AP story provided a, a comparison across the country uh, and New Mexico had the lowest number. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I, I was surprised, in, in, especially in comparison to Colorado, that was in well into double digits. But, uh, you know, overall, you know, it kind of reinforced my, my thought that New Mexico and other states in the West really have a, a conflict of sorts as far as, you know, gun rights are concerned. And there, you know, for me, it really kind of picked up the, you know, an idea that perhaps, you know, this is really a behavioral health issue as mm. far as, you know, how to address behavioral health that's manifesting itself as a Second Amendment issue. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, if if people are going to do bad things, they're going to use anything at, at their uh, disposal to do those bad things, whether mm -hmm. it's a handgun, uh, their own hands, a knife. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I, I, for me, it was just more of a, a reflection of, you know, how, you know, the eastern part of the United States and the western part of the United States are really kind of grappling with this particular issue. Right. Good point there. Your last point a big part of the puzzle here. You know, Kathy, a big piece of this is hesitancy from law enforcement locally who ultimately initiate this process, as you know. Uh, a lot of police here believe seizing guns could be dangerous and, frankly, unnecessary including the head of the New Mexico Sheriff's Association, which lobbied against the state law, as you recall. Uh, how can we change that perception about, among law enforcement, or should we, or can we? How, what do you make of that, how, where they're at on this? You know, it's always difficult to legislate people's attitudes. And, you know, their attitude probably is, is more in line with thinking that we need to make you know gun sanctuary cities and you know that people have a right to bear arms and their second amendment rights are sacrosanct mm -hmm. um but what we know is is that you know perhaps if we could talk to them about how our suicide rate is you know one of the highest in the nation and one of the yep. the, the major ways that people uh commit suicide is through the use of a handgun and so if they could maybe you know think about it just in terms of that and not in terms of you know we're trying to take away your guns but we're trying to make sure that people who are in danger of, of at least harming themselves that we're able to say this is the person that who should probably not legally own a firearm mm -hmm. and it is a behavioral health issue that manifests as uh, a second amendment uh right and and it is you know they need to just like think about it in different ways and and look at, at some of the statistics that have happened over the country to say that 
you know, the people who do have red flag laws and are using them have fewer firearm deaths. Mm -hmm. Michael, on Kathy's point to underscore the need for action on this, the rate of gun violence in our state is 55% higher than it was just 10 years ago. And the financial toll in the state is costing almost 5% of the state's GDP. I mean, are there anything else we need to know here before we get to some kind of solutions? Well, I think one of the things that was referenced, uh, you know, uh, was the fact that, uh, what was it, 78% of U.S. Uh, people support red flag, uh -huh. and that's the public. Right. So um, I think that anyone who serves in any capacity to meet the, as a public servant, be they police, be they sheriffs, be they fire department, be they city government, county government, um, if you're in that sort of, if you've assumed that role in that profession, then you have a duty to, um, I think, um, a, do your best uh, due diligence to, to make a commitment to providing and supporting and protecting the public, mm -hmm. everyone. Uh -huh. um, and clearly the behavioral health reference and substance abuse yep. issues here in New Mexico, that's all part and parcel of it. And um, it, it, it just... And, and then we've got, you know, our DWI um, accident. I mean, they're not accidents. They're, uh, you know, fatalities in mm -hmm. the state. Mm -hmm. So there's a host of these issues. And it's just, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we really are coming at this from a holistic perspective. Uh, because they're all kind of, they, they all can be somewhat interrelated right. and interconnected. And, and it, it really in my mind goes back to the family of origin you know where your where your your parents your grandparents and some of the some families if you have a strong family if you have a family that's home that has a home and adequate income and all of those things that the, the chances of children growing up being healthy and and well adjusted are significantly greater than when you don't have that that's right and 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 i would also say i think that that the use of guns in terms of suicide or homicide is is part of that. Um, so I I mean I don't I don't have I wish I I was going to use a metaphor but I don't have the I don't I don't I, I can't formulate at this point you know sort of uh, what what needs to be done but it does in my mind always goes back to the family of origin and the community. Right. If you've got a strong family and you've got strong community and the support that families need to thrive and grow, you're going to have healthier outcomes for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, Tom, I got to bring politics into with this uh, for a quick second here. Democratic candidate for Attorney General Raul Torres, if you think about it, won the primary on promises to expand the use of red flag laws. He's now running against nominee Jer Jeremy Gay. Uh, do you see this becoming a flashpoint issue in that race? I mean, could Mr. Gay make something of Mr. Torres's use of the law or non-use of it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, because we're you're looking at the political um, arena as right. opposed to reality. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, from the political perspective, yeah, you, you can make pay out of just about anything. And I think that, um, you know, and I I don't have, uh, you know, particular you know thoughts on the attorney general's race at this particular point in time, mm -hmm. despite the election being two months away. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, Mr. Mr. Jeremy Gay could actually make a case along those lines. And I think he would probably have a very strong case by saying that police officers 
have way too much on their plate right now? Does a red flag law really need to rest on their shoulders? Right. I mean, we were talking earlier in the show about, you know, the Albuquerque public schools, uh, you know, being told that they have to be able to monitor the Wilson um, Middle School Park mm -hmm. uh, because of lack of available police officers. And so, you know, that's one of the things I think is we, we need to, as Michael and Catherine have said, we really need to take a more holistic approach as far as how the red flag laws are actually implemented, mm -hmm. um, you know, because it is that behavioral health issue. And I don't think we've, we've addressed that. Instead, we've addressed the tactic of saying, OK, let's take something away that could somebody could use to hurt themselves or others. That's right. Uh, Kathy, we just got about a minute here, but I want to get your take on this. This has been some newly appropriated funding uh, being used to create a new violence prevention unit at the State Department of Health. Now, each year, recurring funds of more than 10 million will go towards munis and tribal governments uh, for a wider range of things like gun safety, outreach, community development that's meant to prevent future gun violence. Necessary stuff, certainly, and the money sounds good, but can they work by themselves, or is there something missing you here that you'd like to see uh, included as well? We have a problem that money alone cannot solve. We need the money, mm -hmm. but we also need to take that holistic approach. And what I'll say, and I guess my answer to every question that you ask me could be that instead of doing things that are transactional and discreet, we need to have transformative mm -hmm. approaches and that we need to combine and understand the nuances and and really as michael was talking about look at community environment look at uh what what got us to the place that we are at mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. gun violence being out of control yep good points there thanks again to our line panel as always thanks to gene and the panel for all of those discussions Please weigh in on our Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook pages if you have any thoughts on any of those topics. As always, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like it, please check out our shows Friday nights at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. If that doesn't work for you, we always repost the show on our YouTube channel so you can watch it there too afterwards. We put the individual segments up there too so you don't have to sit there for a full hour. You can watch a story that matters to you a little bit more if you want to prioritize it. Anyway, however you want to do it, it's all up there on the YouTube channel. Also, keep an eye on those social media pages for updates throughout the week and for previews leading up to our show on Friday nights. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, September 12th, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>